I think you know, they're not going to wait till 2049. I think they want to get there well ahead of that. I, I think that's the case. I think it also goes towards what's what they call the Chinese space dream, which is for them to become the, the, the comprehensive dominant space power by 2049. I think you know, they're not going to wait till 2049. I think they want to get there well ahead of that. But of course, the problem that the Chinese have is they're going up against not just NASA, but against the vibrant commercial space sector in the US, which is actually outpacing NASA. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Have you noticed the incredible uptick in space activity this week? In the United States, we've had the first International Space Station tourists return to Earth. A NASA crew took another SpaceX crew dragon up to the space station. Rocket Lab is waiting for the weather to improve in New Zealand before attempting to use two helicopters to catch the first stage of a rocket before it drops into the ocean. But that's really only a fraction of the picture overhead. This week marked another China Space Day. It's an annual celebration of China's space achievements with Chinese leaders making announcements. The events coincide with the anniversary of the country's first satellite launch, the Dongfang Hong 1, on April 24, 1970. Just in the last decade, China's civil and military space achievements have earned the nation the moniker the pacing threat. And the announcements, just like space infrastructure, seem to have a dual purpose. To take a closer look, I spoke with Malcolm Davis. He's a space and emerging technologies policy analyst and a China military expert from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. But before we get to China, and if you're like me, you're staying abreast of the developments in Ukraine. In addition to the sheer horror, we've seen at least 11 million Ukrainians, mostly women, children, and the elderly, who have been forced to flee Russia's invading forces and its relentless bombing. This is just my opinion, but the space community by its very nature is both positive and forward-leaning. It's got a can-do, make-it-work ethos. So this week, almost 20 corporate members of the U.S. defense space community launched a new mission to aid the people of Ukraine. Let's listen to John Serafini, Hawkeye 360's CEO, and Steve Jakes, executive director and founder of the National Security Space Association, explain. Hello, John. Steve, thank you for coming on the podcast. Morning. Thank you, Laura. Hi, Laura. Pleased to be with you. You two are well-known within the U.S. space, defense, and intelligence communities, but for new listeners and those who are overseas, they may not be as familiar with you or your organizations. So before we get to your announcement, let's take a moment and have you introduce yourselves and your organizations. John, why don't you start first? Sure, thank you. Uh, my name is John Serafini. I am the CEO of a company named Hawkeye 360. Uh, prior to this, I was a, a national security-oriented uh, venture capital investor, building a, a host of different uh, capabilities to support defense, security, and intelligence missions, as well as uh, their commercial applications. Um, prior to that, I was a U.S. Army infantry officer for a number of years and a West Point graduate. And Steve, what about you? 
Uh, thanks, Laura. Uh, my name is Steve Jakes, and I'm the founder and the executive director of the National Security Space Association. Uh, kind of a lifelong space nerd, if you will. Uh, my uh, government time in the Air Force, it was devoted strictly to the intelligence community and the defense community space business. Uh, and I've been in industry uh, since the uh, late 90s and uh, founded uh, and got the ball rolling with the uh, NSSA about four years ago. Uh, we're an industry association strictly devoted to the national security space enterprise. Um, we have uh, something north of about 60 member companies right now, six zero member companies today and uh, growing, and we're in the business of actively supporting the overall national security space enterprise. Now, I don't think there are many people in or outside of the space community who are not watching Russia's war in Ukraine with horror. You know, just in the past week, I've had a few conversations with some folks in the commercial space sector that it's amazing. We can launch satellites and humans into orbit, but yet feel powerless to do something to help the people in Ukraine. And then I saw your email. Why don't you guys take it from here and explain the new mission you're launching? Sure. Well, I'll start off. This is John. Um, you used the word horror, and I think that's absolutely appropriate. This is a, a, a tragic situation of immense proportions, the likes of which we haven't seen since World War II. And uh, it's completely new to our generations. Um, I was on the border between Poland and Ukraine uh, just a few days ago, being an eyewitness uh, as I did some humanitarian efforts to the situation um, and the dichotomy between the tragedy of people streaming across the border with nothing but the clothes on their back and the children in their arms and the inspirational response of the, the NGO community and the Polish government and people of Poland who opened their arms in their homeland to welcome these three plus million refugees from Ukraine into Poland. And I, I came back feeling that something more had to be done that you couldn't unseen what we had seen. And I was fortunate to call up first my old friend, Steve Jakes, and say to Steve, look, there's got to be a mechanism for the space community, for us to raise capital, to participate in humanitarian activities that can make a difference for the people of Ukraine and the Ukrainian government. And to his everlasting credit, Steve did not bat an eye. It was an immediate, absolutely, and this is how we're going to do it. And with that, I'll turn it over to Steve to tell his part of the story. Well, uh, John's done all the heavy lifting thus far, uh, and uh, it, it was uh, it was really a no-brainer. Like like he said, we feel powerless on this side of the of the of the pond, and uh, a lot of uh, broken hearts, et cetera. And so the real issue is, what do we do about this? The fact that John has done a great amount of uh, lead time missionary work on the kind of projects that he may get into here in a moment was the foundation. <clears throat> now it's just a matter of let's get the word out to our network. Uh, we do have the power of a pretty good network across the uh, space enterprise. That word is out and we're in the process now of uh, so, so far successfully uh, soliciting uh, contributions. And uh, we hope to soon turn these uh, contributions into exercising some of these projects that uh, John has on his list. If you could take a moment and tell us what is the name of this initiative and what's been the response so far? 
Sure. Uh, Steve and I came up with, quite simply, the Space Industry for Ukraine Initiative, SIFU. And uh, we pulled together some collateral, engaged with folks in our immediate circles of trust, and pressure tested the concept and found it to be quite attractive to a number of different companies. Ultimately, what we've asked the companies in the space domain is, is to make a $50,000 commitment on a one-time basis, which was a large enough number that if you cobble them together, it can, can raise some very material capital. But by itself, $50,000 for a corporation was largely something that a CEO or, or a CFO could approve relatively quickly. So between the two of us, uh, we reached out quickly to uh, over 100 companies in the space ecosystem, from the, the, the newest, youngest companies on the block who have raised a seed round or a Series A round, to uh, mainstays of the defense industrial base who have been operating for for decades. Um, And their response has been phenomenal. We have today almost $800,000 committed to the space uh, industry for Ukraine initiative. And all of that capital is going to find a home very soon in supporting and financing a number of of high-profile, very important, high-value-add humanitarian projects that we're scoping out in partnership with our NGO partners as we speak. Uh, I echo John's sentiments. Uh, we should say, at least I should say on, our, on John's behalf here, that the response from the 100 plus companies we have reached out to is overwhelmingly positive and complimentary of the activity. Mm-hmm. As a practical matter, many of these companies are endeavoring in their own initiatives as well. So collectively, I think uh, there's going to be a lot of goodness that comes out of the combination of the Sifu initiative and our individual member companies, individual uh, contributions as well. So we're very excited about it. Uh, We're hoping to make a a small difference in a dent in what is otherwise a horrific, horrific uh, tragedy on the other side. What's next? I mean, what is the initiative actually focused on? Sure. So it's important that this is uh, seen as a humanitarian effort. All of the capital that we're raising that's being pooled together is going to finance things like delivering critical foodstuffs and medical care and medical supplies into Ukraine or treating refugees in Poland and other neighboring countries. It's going to be used to help evacuate uh, refugees who are having trouble being able to get out of conflict areas themselves. Uh, It's going to be used to support medical care for individuals uh, in in Poland. It's going to be used to support the intake of Ukrainian refugees as they apply for uh, the appropriate status at places like uh, the Ukrainian consulate in Warsaw. There's a number of different humanitarian efforts that we've already scoped out in partnership with great NGOs like IREX, Lions Club, Save Our Allies, Spirit of America, et cetera, where we can put this capital to work very quickly and know that's going to, to return a significant amount of value in terms of the humanitarian impact almost immediately. The goal of this initiative is not to be an enduring mission. Rather, it's to make a very short-term, immediate impact upon the humanitarian situation by deploying capital with known partners in what I would refer to as shovel-ready humanitarian projects. That's amazing. I'd like to be able to invite you both back and say a month's time for an update. Will you do it? I'd be delighted to, and we should be able to provide you with an update in our efforts in the next couple of weeks. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time, and I look forward to speaking with you guys again soon. Thank you, Lauren. Thanks, Laura. Take care. Have a good day. 
The space industry for Ukraine initiative is intended for space business organizations. If you are not part of the C-suite but want to have your organization participate, John and Steve recommend that you speak with your organization's leadership. I'll have the web address for the press release in the show notes. Now on to China and my discussion with Malcolm Davis. Hello, Malcolm. It's great to have you back on the podcast. Look, it's fantastic to be here, Laura. I always enjoy talking to you and your audience, and it's a great pleasure to be able to do it again. While you're not a stranger to the Downlink audience, briefly introduce yourself and tell us what you're doing. Okay, well, I'm Dr. Malcolm Davis. Uh, I'm a senior analyst in defense strategy and capability, and I'm at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, which is Australia's leading think tank in defense and national security, and that's located in Canberra. But I am coming over to the United States in May uh, for a conference with uh, China Aerospace Studies Institute. So uh, that'll, I'll be in Washington, D.C. for about two weeks. And what are you working on these days? Uh, well, there's an awful lot. Um, but essentially, my main focus is on space policy and space security. So um, right, I've got a couple of big papers. I've got a paper that I'm working on. Uh, on uh, the north of Australia and how it uh, works in with Australia's plans for space. Uh, I'm finishing up a paper on um, uh, space warfare and artificial intelligence in multi-domain operations. But aren't you also going to appear pretty soon, perhaps in the next three days, in The Australian? Uh, yes, well, this morning I've got to write uh, a paper for The Australian, which is Australia's sort of national broadsheet looking at the maritime lessons of the Ukraine conflict for the Indo-Pacific. So uh, that's going into a special supplement um, because Australia is having a major sea power conference in Sydney uh, week after next. Uh, and so that article will be part of that conference. And I'm presenting at the conference as well, looking at how space relates to naval warfare in the 21st century. So the, the link between satellites and, and warships, you know, what's, what's the so what there? Okay, let's just jump right in here. In the Western Hemisphere, we've had lots of space news. The first group of International Space Station tourists have returned to Earth. The fourth post-demonstration Crew Dragon NASA mission has docked with the ISS. And while Steve Carroll fans are just coming to grips with the cancellation of his Netflix comedy series, Space Force, yep, folks, it just got canceled. The real United States Space Force Chief of Space Operations, General J. Raymond, got grilled on Capitol Hill. But strategically, China made a number of announcements this week that beg for a deeper look. Where should we start? Well, um, if you look at some of the uh, the points that I think are worth considering, uh, I think that um, they made an announcement that was rather interesting in terms of asteroid deflection. Um, you know, I think that that's quite interesting. Uh, essentially, they're planning a, a test mission to try and kinetically deflect an asteroid, uh, which is important. Uh, I think every country realizes the significance of the of the threat posed by um near Earth objects, asteroids, potentially hazardous comets. Uh, you know, you only need to see the movie Don't Look Up uh, to understand the significance of that. So I think that, you know, the Chinese mission is interesting to follow. I haven't seen the details of how they're actually going to do it. But, you know, I sort of, uh, I, the question is, in my mind as a strategic analyst is, okay, they're going to do this for altruistic and scientific purposes, accept that, but what are the takeaways for defense and national security 
that they would be getting from that in terms of new, new capabilities. So that's something that I think we need to be conscious of. You know, remember that the, the Chinese space program is run by the PLA. Although you have a commercial civil front with the Chinese National Space Agency, an awful lot of people there are actually uh, military officers wearing civilian suits. So I think that you, know, you need to be aware of the potential dual use applications for anything the Chinese do in space. And you know, this would be one interesting area to look at in terms of, of what it might lead to. Isn't it kind of, when you look at the dual use prospects of it, it does have that sort of anti-satellite test kind of vibe to it, doesn't it? That was the first thing that ran through my mind. Uh, they're going to shoot a projectile at a target to see if they can deflect it. Hmm. What else could you do with that sort of technology? So, you know, I think that uh, we shouldn't be naive in terms of what their intentions are. Um, you know, the, I think the US did a really brave and very positive step uh, earlier where it announced the unilateral ban on direct ascent kinetic kill ASAT tests. Now, they haven't done one of those since 2008 when they tested a, a ballistic missile defence interceptor to destroy an errant satellite that had toxic fuel on board. That was Operation Burnt Frost. And that was, you know, that demonstrated the capability for direct descent kinetic kill. But now the Biden administration is saying, well, we're not going to do this anymore because we want to promote norms of responsible behaviour in space following on from the UN General Assembly Resolution 7536, and there's now an open-ended working group moving towards that. I think that US decision is a good one because it places pressure on Russia and China to follow suit. But really, given what's happening in Ukraine, I don't expect the Russians to, to respond in any way, shape or form to that. And as for the Chinese, uh, I think you know that they will continue doing what they want to do. So I suspect where we'll end up with that is basically the US and a bunch of other Western liberal democracies saying, we're not going to test these things. Um, Chinese and the Russians continue to develop it. And this asteroid deflection mission kind of ties in with that, in my opinion, because it kind of tests similar technology uh, under the cover of public goods, uh, of you know, basically doing something positive for humanity. In that sort of vein, you know, China also announced that it was starting engineering work for its fourth phase of its lunar program. According to state media, that's conducting scientific exploration at the moon's south pole, which is where water is supposed to be and is important to anyone who wants to go do work on the moon. And the data collected from this fourth phase is supposed to inform how China is going to construct its moon base. It's supposed to be a robotic moon base, but a moon base that could support human life as well. How does that sort of play into the strategic picture? I think it plays into the bigger astro strategic picture in terms of the more distant future. So yes, the International Lunar Research Station is, is initially a robotic facility to test robotic technologies. And that makes a lot of sense because the moon is a harsh mistress to borrow the title from the famous novel. And it's, it's not a pleasant environment to work from if you're a human being. Um, so if you can do stuff autonomously or with robots, that's great. But at the same time, there's an important national prestige and science exploration aspect there, which demands humans on the surface. So just as America is looking to go back to the moon with Project Artemis, Chinese uh, are looking to, to get there by the early 2030s. 
the International Lunar Research Station is essentially setting up the infrastructure infrastructure before the Taikonauts get there. And it makes a lot of sense to do, do it that way. And that infrastructure is not just about the stuff on the surface of the moon, it's also about capabilities around the moon in cislunar space. So you're talking about some of the uh, telecommunications, satellite communications, um, the lunar observation infrastructure in terms of satellites that can be placed around the moon to uh, create effectively uh, a, a working and uh, comprehensive networked communications infrastructure between the Earth and the moon on the lunar surface and around the moon. That then really makes it easier for Chinese taikonauts when they do arrive in the late 2030s to essentially get set up very quickly and do work they need to do in a, in a fairly harsh environment. The US is going to do the same thing. Uh, so we're looking at establishing communications infrastructure uh, around the moon uh, to provide uh, greater connectivity because you know the last thing we want with Artemis 3 is essentially ghosty, hazy pictures of, of US astronauts stepping out onto the lunar surface for the first time since December 1972. We want people to be able to see it in full high, high definition, 4K, uh, you know, on their 4K TVs or even in virtual reality. It, it makes sense to lay that ground and space infrastructure before you send the astronauts. So the, the interesting thing in my mind is um, with the... US program being delayed a bit. They're now talking about 2026 being the earliest before Artemis 3 launches and the, S and the SLS is now back in the um, vehicle assembly building. Will the Chinese accelerate their plans so that they can get back to the moon first before the Americans? That would be a really interesting development that could occur in the late later years of this decade. It kind of falls in line with what they also promised this week, which was to break the record for annual launches. Last year, they had the most launches out of any nation at 55. And this year, they have announced that they intend to launch at least 60 to complete the space station as, as well as satellites. It does look like they're trying to push the timeline basically to the left. I think that's the case. I think it also goes towards what's what they call the Chinese space dream, which is for them to become the, the, the comprehensive dominant space power by 2049. I think you know, they're not going to wait till 2049. I think they want to get there well ahead of that. But of course, the problem that the Chinese have is they're going up against not just NASA, but against the vibrant commercial space sector in the US, which is actually outpacing NASA in so many ways. And so it could be that Chinese taikonauts get to the moon, say, in, in the late 2020s, if they accelerate their program, only to be greeted by SpaceX astronauts on the surface running a commercial facility. You know, this is the thing, no matter how fast or slow NASA goes, it could be that SpaceX gets there faster, uh, both in terms of NASA and also the Chinese National Space Agency. So, but I think you're right. I think that they are trying to accelerate. They're trying to build up their space capabilities very quickly. I do think they want to challenge US space supremacy and do it in a fairly decisive and visible way. Tiangong, uh, the space station they've got now is a small space station, but they're trying to encourage international partnership in that space station because they recognize that the international space station is on essentially borrowed time. It's it's in its final years of operation. At a certain point, it will no longer be feasible to operate. And so it will deorbit the International Space Station, which will be a hell of a show if you're able to see it come through the atmosphere. And supposedly NASA has this commercial LEO destinations program, you know, with 
Blue Origin has the orbital reef and Axiom have a space station and so forth. So that may go forward. But once again, it's a question of how the Chinese can move forward by themselves. And you know, I'm not talking about the Russians too much because really I don't see what happens to their country at the end of this war. Their country could be an utter wreck in economic terms, in terms of, you know, in terms of the shattered economy and political system a mess. So I'm really not holding out much hope for the Russians playing a significant role in any of this. Thank you so much for your time. And I really look forward to seeing you here in Washington, D.C. I'm looking forward to being there too and having a lot of really great discussions with yourself and also with others. That will be excellent. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. Thank you.